Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I was scrolling through Twitter and the papers one day, as I usually do, well, the online papers, when I'm looking for podcast guests, and I came across a very interesting Guardian comment piece by a woman called Imogen West Knights. It was entitled, Why Do Hardly Any Straight Men Write About Sex and Dating? Now, immediately, I thought of the Star Wars meme with Admiral Akbar when he shouts, It's a trap! when I read this, but I wanted to read it first before I formed an opinion on it. The men that Imogen spoke to gave their reasons, which even on print seemed like they were a little bit self-censoring their true thoughts about how they thought, but the general gist of them I did agree with. I then came across a response to this piece by an author and this week's special guest called Will Hayes on Dr. John Barry's Centre for Male Psychology website. His piece was called, unsurprisingly, Why Men Don't Write About Sex and Dating, which gave a warts and all analysis and answer to Imogen's question in her piece, and then some. Will is a writer and was writing screenplays with his brother before he realised he needed to improve his skill set. So, in his mid-30s, he went to university and did an undergraduate in English literature before doing a master's in creative writing. Whilst doing his master's, he became disillusioned with the way his course was taught and how elements of the teaching and subject matter was descending into identity politics. And he started writing about male issues and mental health as a result. In this episode, we discuss how that disillusionment came about, a deep dive into this article about just why straight men have no interest in being dating colonists, male desire, and why Will says it is being eradicated from society. We also talk about the importance of men supporting other men as a sex class, much like women do with a sisterhood, and we have a brief discussion about male domestic abuse victim survivors. For Will's mental health, we discuss his negative experience of going to boarding school when he was 11 years old, the impact that boarding school has had on other men in the public eye, and the positive tools he's found to manage and improve his mental health on a day-to-day basis. So this is how my check-in with Will Hayes went. Will, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. When I came across your article on the Centre for Male Psychology, I knew I had to get you on and unpack it all, but also talk about your wider journey too. So first off, how are you, mate? I'm very good, thanks, Freddie. How are you? I'm very well, mate. I'm very well. I've just come back from my nephew's uh, second birthday party. It's 29 degrees outside in North East London. So yeah, very nice start to my weekend. We've got some really juicy and uh, spicy stuff to get into on this podcast, Will. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's start your pod by talking about your writing journey, mate. So tell me how and why you got into it, what inspired you, and just take me through the journey from screenwriting to university to where you are today. Yeah, so I think I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed stories, films, books. You know, I always escaped into books as a kid. So uh, I think that's the inspiration for me, just trying to emulate some of the stories and some of the writing that I've been been reading all my life, you know, learning to just sort of express myself a little more clearly 
And yeah, I think I, I had a skill set that needed to be improved on and I went about doing that in years recently. So I'm now more equipped to write things that I'm happy with because I've had a fair amount of practice in the last few years. And you started off this journey by wanting to write screenplays with your brother and who had been living in Buenos Aires in Argentina at the time. However, when you started, you you quickly realised how much work it would involve. So why did that make you want to do an undergraduate degree fairly late on in life, comparatively, I should say, in air quotes, instead of doing, say, an adult writing class or something else? I think I dropped out of university when I was 19 and I hadn't really considered that in the next decade or so but I think when it came to trying to adapt we were doing an adaptation of a novel sort of a costume drama if you will a novel from a couple of hundred years ago I felt that I had didn't have the skill set to uh, translate that into a screenplay I wanted to learn more about Shakespeare and some of the more difficult to approach texts in the English language and so I wanted to go back and basically finish what I, what was unfinished business get myself the degree that I hadn't finished uh, when I was 19. And how did that feel as a personal achievement, given that you had dropped out at 19? Yeah, it felt good. It it was a lot of work and I I didn't know what to expect at the time. Looking back on it now, it was an achievement, something I'm proud of, and I certainly don't regret doing it. But it was a lot of work as well, yeah. There's a really funny um, Mickey Flanagan bit where he talks about going back to universities like a mature student and he makes a joke that... uh, Someone says, oh, the window cleaner seems keen. Did you have any trepidation about going back to university as a mature student? I think I definitely did have some trepidation around it just because I didn't know what to expect. Obviously, I think, you know, education's moved on quite a bit in the sort of 20 years where I, in the nearly 20 years where I wasn't doing it. But I did my degree with the Open University, which was a great experience. So you have a very broad range of different types of students uh, Mm. doing it. You know, you could do it part time. You can do it on your own timetable. You don't have to travel and live in a different city. So there were plenty of other mature students, plenty of foreign students, plenty of people of all different ages. So once I was in there and doing it, there was no more trepidation because, uh, you know, I I felt like I was in the right place. Let's fast forward to your master's because you graduate with that English literature degree from the Open University and you want to go one step further and you do a master's in creative writing. However, this is where you began to experience some challenges, shall we say, maybe not academically, but the way you were being academically taught and the environment you were in. So just tell the listeners what happened and and the explanation for that. Yeah, thanks, Freddie. So to put it into context, I started my master's, I think it was end of September or beginning of October 2017 which is just before, just as the Me Too movement uh, exploded in the press, it definitely started to change the environment a bit. I mean, my creative writing masters, like a lot of creative writing courses, was predominantly female students. We were in the minority. There were female students, but not many of us. English more um, generally, to be fair, that's quite across the board, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I think you're right. Across the board, particularly within English literature, maybe even English language and creative writing, more women are potentially more interested in those subjects. There's nothing wrong with that. I knew that was going to be the case. But I think increasingly, as the course went on, I was starting to feel a little bit like maybe slightly not welcome or that my perspective wasn't current Mm. anymore. Okay. There's a story that you told me off air where one of your very few male peers on your course was marked down for a piece of work because it, quote, didn't have enough female characters in it. 
Now, from my perspective, and obviously this is perhaps a naive perspective, surely the work should be judged on its narrative structure, the writing style, the quality, rather than a quota. Exactly. I mean, I agree with you. Also, I think within the guidelines of the course, there was no forewarning about any kind of quotas in terms of representation of different types of people. I fully believe that more representation has been needed and that maybe there was a a male-dominated element to a lot of the work that has been published. However, in recent years, I don't think that's the case. I think a shift was necessary, but I think the area is wide enough, a big enough scope for everyone to uh, have their voice included rather Mm. than preferring one type of voice over another because the voice previously has dominated. Yeah, we're going to talk about publishing in that sense in in a little bit. But there's also a point here to make, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of women who would make this point, that they would actually find it offensive to have their sex class forced into a piece of work just because of their sex class rather than because a female character was worthy of inclusion. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of women, but... I, sure, I would, of course. I'm just trying to think of the other point of view. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I, I certainly, uh, I, I would agree with that. You don't, you don't want to be kind of shoved into a story to mm. tick boxes or, or for mm. any kind of tokenism. Mm. Uh, I have to say as well that there were plenty of female students on our course who also found this situation with it, with this guy being marked down. They were also calling that, questioning that and, and finding that quite concerning. You know, it, it was a sentiment across quite a few of the students on the course that maybe this had sort of taken us by surprise and uh, wasn't exactly a fair way of going about things. The annoying thing, I guess, with any of these subjects, especially humanities subjects, and I experienced this to a certain degree, but in a different way at my university, Sussex, where you would sometimes subconsciously and actually sometimes consciously write an essay for your tutor and how they would perceive it rather than your own enjoyment, shall we say, your academic interest. That, thankfully, I didn't have to do that with my dissertation. But where do you see this going when it comes to this kind of trend, basically? Yeah, I, I think you're right. If you're going to start maybe pandering to uh, what you think is going to give you approval, then it's going to inhibit self-expression. You know, I don't think you should go out to offend people. But I uh, also think that, you know, a story should include what it requires rather than having to include things that you're being told there's a lack mm. of in your work. I think it should be whatever it is that serves the story. So I, I think it, you know, it's problematic when you start to put these kind of restrictions on people, uh, telling them who, who they should and shouldn't include in, in a story. You spoke there about publishing, and th- this brings us nicely on to the next topic, which is the publishing industry and how identity politics has sort of creeped its way into certain elements and you talked about the the course correction or the over course correction now obviously we must caveat this in the fact that up till say even the 90s maybe even the early noughties you know publishing was dominated by men the authorship of people were were dominated by men but my friend and friend of the podcast rosenfield has talked extensively about how this identity politics has creeped into say the young adult literary world so just give my listeners an insight into this this change from a mental health perspective when it comes to publishing Yes, I think identity politics and mental health in general are not particularly good bedfellows. <laughs> you know, I'm not an insider in the literary world, but yeah, I think there's a kind of risk aversion or a, a real very frightened of um, including works that may be criticised because they're uh, centering certain voices over others. Mm. However, I think you know you don't correct an imbalance by creating more imbalance. Yes. So I think yeah, from a mental health perspective, identity politics can lead to, like I said, self censorship, being very cautious, 
and not saying what you mean or not serving the story properly for fear of what criticism that you might get. I think criticism is brilliant and I think there are lots of valid points around this, but I think it's stopping people maybe even before they've started because you know, they don't want to put themselves in the line of fire, so to speak. I'm thinking about this from the other perspective and they'll say, well, there's loads of men who are still getting books published and they're controversial. You know, I'm thinking of someone like Douglas Murray off the top of my head. But what I would counter to that point is, well, Douglas Murray is A, very successful, B, written a lot of books already, and C, probably has the clout to get through that barrier because the publisher knows that, well, you know, he might be controversial, but we know he'll sell a lot of books. It's actually the lower rung down the ladders of, of men who are, who are wanting to perhaps publish more controversial books that are going to be the victims of it rather than, say, the titans like Douglas Murray. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I think it's that concept of correcting an imbalance with another imbalance. Yeah, younger male authors are struggling to find an audience, to find a readership because of the corrections uh, taking place within the, the publishing industry because of the, the kind of internet pylons and criticism that can come about. You know, if you're publishing something that is seen as now controversial or giving... Um, more of a voice to a young male author compared to a female author but you know if you if you go into a bookshop now a lot of the new authors uh, a lot of work being published by people who aren't that famous very few of them are, are young male authors mm. and I, I think that's just denying a lot of talent like I just go back to what you were saying where you know media landscape's been dom- male dominated so during that period, it's a disgrace that so many talented female voices Correct. haven't been able to find an audience and a readership, and that definitely needed to be addressed mm-hmm. and needed to be corrected. But swinging totally the other way doesn't seem to me to be a fair way of going about that. 100%. And you, know, you only have to look at the fact that J.K. Rowling, for example, had to write under a male pseudonym when she was publishing crime novels in order to get published. So you know, we, there was definitely a, a correction that needed to be had. But like you said, I think it's probably gone a bit too far the other way, in my opinion. However, I want to talk about now something that you were quite keen to talk about when we spoke off air, which is you said that the author Ian McEwen said that male desire is being eradicated from the literary landscape. What did he mean by that in your words? And just tell me what his point was, essentially. What he was saying was that, and this again comes from another article in The Guardian, he said that he'd heard a young male novelist recently saying that he could no longer write about the subject of male desire. And uh, just to quote Ian McEwen, he he, said, I thought, God, that's terrible, because that's the desire of half the world. And it's a subject just as much as female desire is or a thousand other things, it needs to be handled, whether it's done well or badly, let readers decide. And readers can't decide if things aren't being published. And it does seem to me a little bit of a kind of infantilization, sort of treating everything with kid gloves, desperately not trying to offend what I believe is a vocal minority, trying to shut voices down. Let's talk about the reason we are speaking today, mate, which is your article on the Centre for Male Psychology website. As I said in the intro, it was called Why Men Don't Write About Sex and Dating, which was in response to a Guardian opinion column called Why Do Hardly Any Straight Men Write About Sex and Dating? So why did you want to write that response piece in the first place? And just why don't straight men write about dating and sex, eh? (laughs) Yes, I think the journalist who wrote the piece, you know, there was a genuine curiosity in what she was writing. She did genuinely seem to be interested in hearing about men's experiences of dating. However, it seems to be a case of, 
you know, men maybe don't talk enough, but then if you do talk, we only want you to say the things that, are, you know, the society wants you to say. Don't go off onto anything that might be uncomfortable or, con- or controversial because that's not your place now. So there's a kind of a bit of a prohibitive censoring going on where women can talk about the ins and outs of what is positive or negative about dating, whereas for men, there's a bit more of a kind of rigid straitjacket situation where basically it's not really acceptable to go into the details about whether something was good why it was good whether something was bad or why it was bad my main gripe with the article not your article but the guardian piece and it's something i said in the intro which it sounded like the admiral akbar meme it's a it's a trap when i was when when people were wondering why straight men don't write about sex and dating and you talk about this as well where one of the male contributors says if it's going well it comes off as braggy and vulgar if it's going poorly stop whinging in print so if we know pretty well this will be the likely reaction, why would women want us to write about it? Because that poor author would never win and probably cancel himself. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, like you said, it's a trap or a catch-22 situation. So if a man is writing about a date, say, that went wrong and, you know, there wasn't a physical attraction or anything like that, then it could come across as, you know, showing insensitivity or a lack of awareness However, kind of like that is feeding into stereotypes about maybe males boasting about sexual conquests and things like that. You know, I don't think that that is a, a, is a decent argument. I think uh, normally we're laughing about our rejections. <laughs> That's the way we get it, through it. Exactly. There's plenty of rejections, <laughs> and also, I, you know, I, again, I think we should be able to talk about rejections, but also have respect for the person who has rejected you. You can't just dismiss them and dehumanize them yeah, yeah, yeah. because they haven't said so. You know, mm. they made a decision that you didn't agree with. There's a give and take here on both sides. That's what the environment should be around dating. And uh, I think it would be better for everybody if that was the case. The next key point the Guardian author is, is self-aware to recognize about my men don't want to do this is she says, quote, it may be that for a number of fair reasons, women are allowed to denigrate men in print, but not the other way around. So as you state, up until fairly recently, objectification of women was not just widespread, it was pretty much accepted in mainstream culture. It still is in a few arenas, you know, the treatment of women as property in some hip-hop or rap artist videos, the concept of the video vixen, as the slang term denotes. However, your spicy take is, quote, the opposite is now normalised and men have become the outgroup. Unpack that for me. Yeah, so I think men are the outgroup in society at the moment, maybe in terms of you, you can make blanket statements about men that are quite derogatory or dismissive that you'd never be able to make about women. And as she said in her, in, you know, the bit that you quoted from her, it may be that for a fair number of reasons, women are allowed to denigrate men in print. Well, the number of fair reasons to me seems to be around, based on what I feel is assumptions based on an ideology you know, to do with power relations where all men are more powerful than all women, therefore totally different rules are allowed to apply. I don't see that in my daily life. I think stating an assumption and, and, and calling it a fact about the power structures between men and women is not very helpful, mm. is not true. And so the idea that you know, women can talk about denigrate men and men can't denigrate women. Well, first of all, why would women want to denigrate men? And why is that seen as something that that is a good thing to do, whereas the other way around, it's forbidden and and would be condemned? Yeah, and any good man wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I I think men don't really organise themselves together, which kind of puts us in an outgroup. Women are better at advocating for each other 
uh, and giving themselves that in-group preference. You reference as well a book which I need to get round to reading. I've got about 50 million books on my reading list, but it's called The Empathy Gap, Male Disadvantages and the Mechanisms of Their Neglect, which is by an author called William Collins, whose real name is Rick Bradford. So what does this book cover that supports your argument? Where is the empathy gap for men specifically and how does that relate to their mental health? Yes, thank you. So, yeah, it's a big book, 600-odd pages. Oh, Jesus, I'm not getting around to it for a while then. (laughs) (laughs) But he's actually using a lot of government data, Office for National Statistics data. You know, this is kind of gold standard uh, statistics that he's using to support his argument, showing where the same data and the same statistics have been manipulated by various different groups, both within government and within other sectors where the disadvantages men face are kind of erased from the picture. Even just to to talk about male disadvantage, people seem to find that a problem in itself. There's a presumption that men are uh, entitled or privileged. You can point to the very small number of men right at the top of society, but the majority of men are not there. And actually, if you look at the bottom of society, that is far more populated probably by by men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you extrapolate this issue more widely to other issues in society where men either suffer or are discriminated against, for example, as you say in the article, family law courts, educational outcomes, a criminal justice system, you know, you don't have to look at the percentage of men who are excluded in the school system versus women. Does the pushback against these arguments or pointing out them simply mean that men don't see the worth the risk to bother speaking up about them because they won't be listened to? Yeah, I just I think there's definitely an environment where you just don't want to put yourself in the firing line. You can mm. Keep your head down, don't moan about it. No, no whinging. Again, it says in the article that you know. I mean, he uses his real name now, Rick Bradford. But in the article, he was interviewed and he was asked, uh, "Why did you use a pseudonym?" And he used one word. He said, "Fear." It's not a good look, is it, using a pseudonym? But there's a reason why most men who talk about these issues tend to be retired or unemployed. You know, that, that tells you everything. The stakes are high. There's a lot to lose, potentially mm. your career, your livelihood, your reputation. And most people don't want to go anywhere near that. I want to talk now about a sneak peek view of an article that you are going to write at some point, mate, which is about how we measure male vulnerability. And I always say on this podcast, vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. I hate when people say, oh, you showed weakness. No, you showed vulnerability. You didn't show weakness. It's absolute bollocks, in my opinion, when broadcasters say that about men talking about their mental health. Just tell me a little bit about this, if you can, and the factors you're using to work this out when it comes to male mental health. Yeah, thanks, Freddie. So yeah, I'm still working on this article at the moment. But the way I would put it to you is, you know, I personally don't have children myself at this point i'm not sure if you do but if you were to have twins say a boy and a girl you know at what age would you start to uh, tell your daughter about some of the dangers in society that she might face you would think that that would be you know a natural thing to do you know around things like sexualization Mm -hmm. modification Mm -hmm. objectification but what about your son you know he's far more likely to die prematurely he's far more likely to take his own life He's far more likely to fail uh, in education. So, you know, he's far more likely to suffer from addiction. I think there's a balance there. You know, there are lots of issues around female vulnerability, and those are well known. But the other side of that, and male vulnerability, is still kind of taboo to talk about. And I think we really need to make our young boys aware Mm. of this so that they then have the tools to negotiate it as they move through into adulthood. 
I want to talk now about something which I talk a lot about on this podcast, actually, which is the idea of how men need to be better at supporting other men as a sex class. You know, people can have an opinion on Jess Phillips, but one thing she does talk about in a book really well, which is the idea of the sisterhood. And I think we should be talking about a brotherhood more and how we can support each other's men. You know, every man who comes on my podcast is my brother. I always say that to him all the time. So why is it important for men to do this in their own way? Obviously, women can do it in their own way, too. Yeah, sure. So I, I think there just hasn't been a culture of it. Men are, seem to want to compete with each other you know and often men getting together it's either around an activity be it sport or drinking and that's fine by the way that's all fine (laughs) exactly that's all fine i mean just so for example the concept of men's sheds is men getting together they might be fixing a table or fixing a bike or something like that but then within doing that task that gives them then an informal environment where maybe they can talk shoulder to shoulder you know about things are a little bit that you know they can show their vulnerability more in a relaxed informal non-therapeutic environment i think that is often more men that is more conducive to men opening up and maybe a more formalized yes because uh, it takes the pressure off doesn't it it takes the pressure exactly. off. that's the big thing i say always if you want to have a big conversation with a lad do something fun or do something nice and casual so it's not this like come round and talk to me about it. it's like we'll do something chill, we'll go to the pub and then you bring it in. So it's like, there's no pressure on the conversation. Exactly, yeah. The final issue I wanted to cover on the podcast, mate, with you, and it's something I've talked about a lot and it's something I'm really, really passionate about. If there's anything I hope is a legacy of this podcast, it's it's helping these men in particular, which is domestic abuse victim survivors. Now, I've covered this issue in great depth with Deborah Powney. I'm sure you're, you're aware of her and I've had lived experiences of friends on the pod, Sean Flores, Michael Fanimo, Duncan Cray, heterosexual and homosexual relationships. So the listeners can go back and listen to those if they wish however what i want to ask you about is the recent response on this issue when the minister for home affairs was asked a question about this in parliament because you were passionate about talking about this tell the listeners what they were asked and their response yeah so this happened about a year ago now in the house of lords but the conversation is still rumbling on now this conversation is still going on but i'm just going to quote a little bit from what was said so lord farmer asked baroness williams of trafford one third of domestic abuse victims are men and, per the new Domestic Abuse Act, boys who witness domestic abuse are also victims, yet many male victims of violence are categorised as victims of violence against women and girls, while others have no specific policy. Does the Minister agree that this categorization is semantic nonsense and that ignoring men's specific needs makes a mockery of equality? Moreover, will the government publish a parallel violence against men and boys strategy to cover all forms of intimate violence against men and boys. And Baroness Williams of Trafford responded, had we done it in the way that he suggests, there may have been a lot of complaints from women and domestic abuse organisations that we had not reflected the fact that this is predominantly women who suffer from domestic abuse. You know, my response to that is, if one third of domestic abuse victims are men, that's a significant amount. That's at least, it's at least It's at least, third. yeah, I was about to say yeah. it's at least, yeah. Men are less likely to identify as victims and because of the stigma... Or know they are. Or even know what they went through as abuse, yeah. So, you know, we need our own strategy. And I think the fear that it's going to get pushed back from um, domestic abuse organisations is, is, you know, a real shame. I'm trying very hard to maintain my political impartiality here. So we will quickly move on to uh, reflections now, Will. So as a final question before we talk about your mental health journey, going along this writing journey as you have for this many years, what has it taught you about yourself? I think what it's taught me is it's enabled me to collect my ideas and express myself more clearly. 
It's also enabled me to enjoy positive feedback, but also the criticism that comes with it. When you write anything, some people are going to like it. Some people are going to have a problem with it. Some people are going to point out things to you that maybe you hadn't noticed before. And that's all brilliant. So if something is forming in your mind, you put it out on paper and then and then you get feedback. You know, it becomes a living, breathing thing in the world. And, and that's pretty exciting. You know, I, I enjoy that a lot. We've talked about your writing journey, mate, and all the issues that you wanted to talk about. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the will we meet here? Yeah, thanks, Freddie. So I think early life, pretty happy, you know, loving family, mum, dad, brother, sister, you can't ask for more than that, supportive, all of that. Maybe, you know, a little bit of anxiety as as a young kid. I think a lot of kids have that. Nothing too major, though. So really, in terms of early life, very happy, supportive childhood, really. The main part of your mental health journey we're going to talk about, mate, is your experience of boarding school when you were sent there aged 11 years old. So tell me about your experience of it and why it had a negative impact on your mental health. Yeah, okay. So I think, well, just to put it in context, I've been growing up in a loving family at home in my own bedroom. I would suddenly then was in a dormitory with 15 boys in the middle of nowhere with no access to my family or my friends or my dog or any of that. It's a very harsh and abrupt change from one thing to another. It's filled with boys who are very scared and homesick, all trying to pretend that they're not. Anyone who is acting out those feelings gets scapegoated, got scapegoated by the other boys. So it's a pretty harsh, unforgiving environment where you sort of have to, I quickly learned to bury my emotions, forget what I was feeling and try and survive and keep my head down the best I Mm. could. It's really interesting you say that because, you know, my state comp school, very rough school in Essex was exactly the same experience, just not in the middle of nowhere. It was the, you know, suppressing the emotions. It was dog eat dog. It was very much a prison environment. Obviously boarding school doesn't look on the outside like a prison because of the uh, economic status of the people who go there. But it, it might have felt like a prison because of the fact that you couldn't leave, you know, until the end of term or wherever it was. Is that, is that how it felt like a little bit too? I would call it a form of incarceration. Yeah, I mean, most mm. of the time when, when the kids weren't obsessing over food, they couldn't have because the food at the school was pretty horrendous. Everything is about when can you get to go home again? For mm. some kids, that might be every three weeks. Some kids wouldn't get to see their parents for the whole term. So, yeah, like you say, I mean, I've been to day school as well, and I know what you mean. You know, that can be a pretty horrible environment. But at least at 3.30 or whatever it is, you get to go home. This is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what I call a a total institution, you know. Yeah, it's a little different. There's no escape from it. There's no escape from your peers. There's no escape from whoever might have it in for you. I developed some fairly extreme adaptations, I would say, that were necessary at the time. But, you know, after leaving boarding school, those adaptations no longer uh, fitted well with the real world. Well, exactly. And that's something I like to work through in therapy when it comes to taking away this subconscious protector that I'd had in school in order for me to be able to survive. So how did that protector that you probably had affect your ability to, say, form relationships with others as a teenager and a young adult and the man you are now? And how did you let that go as well? Yeah, I think it's still a work in progress. So one of the main things in terms of relationships it did to me at the time was I became distrustful and resentful of anyone in authority, be that Mm. prefects, teachers, but also adults in general. Because on the one hand, everyone's telling you how lucky you are to be there and how good this school is. 
but that ha- that's completely at odds with the, my internal reality of how I was feeling, you know, homesick, unsupported, unloved, no physical contact whatsoever, no hugs, you know, anything like that would be pounced on with the rampant homophobia that you often mm. get in these kind of all male institutions. So yeah, I'm still working on this now in terms of because a, a kind of distrust of authority, whilst it can be healthy to some extent, I think you also sometimes need to place your trust in authority, <laughs> be it the police or whoever it is. But, you know, that is a barrier for me. Even now going forward, it's, mm. I still struggle with that. I'm sure you're self-aware to know, Will, that people from boarding schools or just privately educated backgrounds are disproportionately represented in a lot of high society, politics, law, comedy even the music industry has got quite a lot of people from that background because of the nature of how hard it is to succeed and people need rich parents in order to get a leg up so the connections one makes here can often set you up for later life success however there is obviously a reality as you say for those who don't enjoy it can be pretty hard was that the case for you you know when you talk about it sometimes with normies do people get a tiny violin out for you like how do you kind of talk about it no, no one gets a tiny violin out for me because I went to boarding school and absolutely I, I, I'd, I'd be kind of embarrassed and, and appalled if they did. But yeah, I think definitely one of the reasons why parents send their kids to boarding school is because it may give you access to the networks later in life. It could be very important. And you're right, it's like an old boys network. Having said that, you know, not all boarding schools are Eton and Harrow. Mm-hmm. Mine certainly wasn't of that kind of pedigree. But, you know, I think unless you conform to the kind of ethos of the school, it can be very tough. You know, so the kids who can play the game uh, and have the parents who know the right teachers and everything, you know, some of the kids do well and they have access to these networks. The ones that either refuse to conform or unable to conform to the rigid school environment often suffer and they are excluded from these kind of networks. And that can cause a lot of problems, you know, as you go into adult life. Depressingly, in a way, there's quite a lot of comedians who I can name from a privately educated or boarding school background and people in the the industry. But you mentioned a few to me off air who have spoken about the negative experiences they had. So the likes of musician, former pop idol winner, Will Young. He spoke about the impact that boarding school had on him. And tragically, his twin brother also took his own life. They've also been comedians, Will Buxton, Marcus Brigstock. I think even Louis Theroux talked about it, I think, maybe perhaps Hal Cruttenden, who's a comedian. So did these men speaking openly about it help you find maybe some commonality, some comfort with how you felt? Yeah, so it's, it's Adam Buxton. And, uh, Adam he, Buxton, he went, sorry, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he went to Westminster with Louis Theroux and yeah, he talked about it being kind of devastating, the same as Marcus Brigstock. So actually, I don't know if you've heard of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, they were comedians from the 60s, but what Peter Cook said was, I quickly learned that if I can make the bullies laugh, they stop beating me. That was his mechanism at boarding school. So I think, you know, one of the reasons why some of these guys have become comedians maybe is to uh, deflect attention and aggression from some of the other kids in the school. But yeah, going back to Will Young, you know, he directly makes a link between his brother's suicide and drinking problems and all the rest of it with the harsh reality of going to boarding school, being thrown against radiators, having books slammed in your head, all the kind of casual... uh, violence and just the the atmosphere of fear in those places can have a real impact on you in later life and I think Will Young particularly was very clear in the way he expressed what had happened to his brother and making that association between his brother's suicide and the experience that he'd had at boarding school. Hindsight is obviously a, a wonderful thing but how do you look back on it do you think you'd have done better in a state comp or run of the mill in inverted commas you know 
day school, private school? And how do you view the decision made by your parents as well? I look back, I think my parents were duped in a way and we were duped. You know, the culture and the society kind of encourages high achieving academic prowess. However, you know, this can come at, at a real price. So, I, I, you know, I don't blame my parents at all. I think, you know, it was maybe looking back as a bit of an experiment. I wasn't particularly happy at my day school. There weren't that many options around. I think, it, you know, my dad was doing well, started to do well in his career. So had some, you know, making great sacrifices, but, you know, was able to send one of the three of us to boarding school. So there was no tradition in the family. Often you find that grandparents, parents and kids of all, you know, it's a tradition through the generations to send your kids to the same school. So some kids, you know, they're put down at birth. For, you know, their names are put down for a boarding school. You know, that, that's not really their fault in a way. They, mm. you know, it's been decreed and they are just following the path that's been set out for them. So when it comes to how you've gone about, maybe not recovering is not the right word, maybe, maybe it is, but when it comes to this part of your journey, you said you found medication and you found therapy helpful, the latter up to a point. So how did they help you and what tools did they give you? So yeah, it was actually meditation, not oh, meditation. meditation. Sorry, my notes again. I'm making minor, minor errors. <laughs> no, but we could, I mean, I did try, I did try antidepressants once, I think, and not for very long and they didn't help me out. But meditation, I'm not a huge meditator, but I do try and do 10 or 15 minutes in the morning. It just helps me quiet the mind, set my intention for the day, get rid of some of the negative thoughts uh, and you know just it just helps me put the right foot forward in the morning and then yeah with therapy I mean I, I, I didn't seek therapy until my mid-30s and like I said it was really helpful it helped me understand my own story it helped me make a connection between some of my less appealing behaviors more maybe dysfunctional ways of dealing with things and understanding that those were adaptations I kind of had to make at boarding school but then after a certain amount of time, I think, you know, I, I was done talking about it and mm -hmm. I wanted to do the work for myself on my own. And I think a lot of that is going into your own mind and going, oh, okay, I'm feeling this. This kind of a situation makes me feel like this. For me, maybe just naming the emotion, sitting with it, accepting it rather than fighting it with it. That's been a really good technique for me. Whereas, you know, from the age of 11, I would just block them, shut them mm -hmm. down you know, disown these feelings and, and eventually that's going to come back to bite you. Let's reflect now on your mental health journey, mate. So a similar question as before, what has it taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me to try and have more kindness and compassion for myself. And then if I could, if I do that, I'm more kind and compassionate to other people. I think, you know, I, I was getting into a habit of becoming impatient and irritable. I still can do that to an extent, but I think I've definitely just been able to slow myself down, give myself some time and know that, you know, when you're having negative feelings or that you're feeling, I'm feeling overwhelmed, it will pass. It will get better. Something else is going to happen. And, and like I said, just, just naming the emotion in itself helps it helps me to deal with it. And part B, if you could go back and talk to the Will who was struggling to adjust from being away from his family and friends at boarding school, the Will who was disillusioned with his course mates in his masters, or not course mates, I should say, the academic structure of his masters, or the Will who was about to hit send on that male dating columnist article, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Yeah, so what would I say to the kid who's uh, struggling to adjust at boarding school? I would say, I've got you, mate. I'm now, as an adult, I have the tools and the maturity to 
soothe that lost little child. I still have to kind of do that, you know, on an almost daily basis. So that, that's one thing. But being disillusioned with uh, my course mates, I think at the time I was a little bit uh, stunned at what the situation was. If I was back there now, I would be questioning a little bit more openly why certain assumptions were being made about one type of person rather than another when we're all students equally in the course. So I may have been a little bit more uh, vocal about my feelings on that. And then when it comes to the male dating columnist article, you know, I thought, right, I, had to, I have to respond to this. I, I know that there might be some pushback, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, you know, I'm pretty proud of myself for having done that because I don't regret it at all. I think I expressed myself fairly clearly. I don't want to uh, divide people or upset people, but I think so, things need to be called out when they need to be called out. Our final topic of conversation, Will, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? You know what, Freddie, my mental health at the moment is not bad at all. You know, there are up days and there are down days. And, you know, sometimes the ups can be hard, hard to deal with too. They always pass. That's one of the things I'm able to tell myself now. You know, if, if something goes really well and you're on a high, you've got to be a little bit wary because it's not going to stay like that all the time. But also when I do start thinking, oh, what's the point or this and that, I'm much more able to kind of snap out of it, collect myself and go again. I've got more resilience and a little bit more uh, self-knowledge and uh, self-compassion at the moment. And those are the tools I needed I didn't have in the past. And if you felt comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? Yeah, so in the past and still to an extent now, I definitely do have some anxiety and I am prone sometimes to depression. And again, I would attribute a lot of this to the experience of going to boarding school. But I'm, I'm more able to manage it. I do it through breath work. So just the power of being conscious of my own breath, I find that very, very soothing. Just slowing myself down. Rather, you know, I used to kind of hurry and rush and get stressed and everything. I still can do that to this day. But um, I, I'm more able to catch myself in that moment and go, hang on a second, you know, let, let's take it easy. So, yeah, there is anxiety, there is some depression, but they're much more manageable now than they have been in the past. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mental health? Yeah, I would say... I was completely clueless for many years. You know, I've listened to some... <laughs> We're all been there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to quite, you know, a few of your podcasts in preparation for this, and I'm amazed at some of the people who are 20 plus years younger than me, and just how well spoken they are in terms of expressing how they're feeling, and just how different it was for me and most of my generation mm. at that time. You know, I think we're learning a lot from younger people in terms of how to express ourselves how to not feel uh, ashamed or embarrassed about it. So I think, I think uh, it's good. You know, I'm learning from people who are younger than me about how to manage my mental health, mental health and that's a great thing. Mm, hopefully they learn from you as well, mate. Hopefully they learn from you. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have on you looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big burden or moment or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? Yeah, so I think it was you know, probably late 20s. I went to my GP 
And so basically I was having panic attacks at the time. I didn't really know what they were. And, uh, you know, the GP was fairly dismissive. He was saying, well, you should do this and don't do this. Take these uh, antidepressants. You know, it was very sort of cursory. There wasn't much of an investigation. But looking back on it, at least that was a first step. You know, it wasn't satisfactory at the time, but it was definitely a small step on the path to me starting to take action for myself to move forward and, you know, just have the agency to manage my mental health for myself rather than uh, outsourcing it to other people, which Mm. is never going to work, I don't think. No, you're right. Unfortunately, a bad first response, but a great first step. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What things do you find in life, mate, that trigger your mental health? So this could be things people say to you, a sound, being in a particular social environment, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? So, yeah, interesting. I think people are going to say things that you're not always comfortable or happy with. But I always try and remind myself that how I react is my choice. You know, I can choose to get upset or I can choose to just sit with it. You know, I don't have to react to everything. That is a great thing to have in your back pocket when you when you feel like someone may be having a go at you. That's not fair. Yeah, when it comes to sounds and sensations, I'm not great in particularly busy places where it's very crowded and there isn't much personal space. And then sometimes on the London Underground, particularly <laughs> some parts of the Central Line, the Victoria Line, can be. Very, I live on very the Central noisy. Line, mate. I know, I know. <laughs> it can be very noisy, so sometimes it's fingers in the ear times. Well, now I've got noise cancelling headphones, so I just use. Them. Oh, mate, there's a tunnel between. I think it's Myland and Stratford. That's not only like the longest on the TfL, I think, but also it's like one of the loudest, like literally one of the loudest places you can be, like ever. Like, it's yeah, so and I, deafening. And it's really, and I think, you know, if, if you're doing that every day, then there could be hearing damage, you know, in the yeah. long run. Yeah, maybe I should look into that. <laughs> <laughs> Conversely then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Okay, so yeah, I, I went back to like a, a swimming group, an evening swimming group about six or seven years ago. I learned how to do the front crawl having never been able to do that. So that was amazing. That was like an epiphany for me. It's great exercise, but it also feels like a bit of a combination between dancing and flying when I'm when I'm doing my front crawl, either in a swimming pool or in the sea or wherever it may be. So yeah, that swimming and being in nature at both at the same time, those can be uh, brilliant for me. I found that really long meditation sessions, which I have tried in the past, don't work for me so well 10 or 15 minutes at a time is about my lot when I'm doing something like meditation you know and what is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related it doesn't exclusively have to be if you can't think of a book play tv show any piece of popular culture album whatever you want yeah so there's a couple you know you're going to be very familiar with them Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score that's Mm -hmm. just really let me understand that you know a lot of the symptoms a lot of the feelings in my body anxiety and stuff you know if I can take myself out of my head and into my body and concentrate on that it always helps me uh, it always helps my mental health but also Gabor Mate is in the realm of hungry ghosts at the back of that book, book he's got yeah he's got a you know a kind of a method for going about compassionate inquiry when I take the time to go through those steps 
again, it's always helpful. I never regret doing that. Yeah, I call him one of the goats when it comes to uh, psychology and mental health. Like he, for me, he's like he's the best. I've read in the realm of hungry ghosts. I've read his book on ADD as well or ADHD. And I literally like any time I interview someone with ADD or ADHD, I say just read this book if you haven't, or give it to someone if you if they don't know anything about it. <laughs> well, that, that's got to be on my reading list, yeah, because I've read in the realm of hungry ghosts, but I haven't read any of his other work yet. So I, that, that's definitely all on the reading list. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, will what would it be and why? Yeah, so my mantra would probably be just as simple as be kind and compassionate to yourself. And then if you could do that, you're hopefully going to be kind and compassionate to other people. We need more of that, less division, less pointing the blame at other people, maybe a little bit more taking responsibility for yourself and the way you conduct yourself. You know, I I, I think that's a win-win situation. And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one, but I'm sure you'll have lots of thoughts. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Okay, yeah, thanks, Freddie. So I think at this point, I just want to mention, I think a lot of my inspiration for what I've been doing has come from the Tin Men Instagram page. And in that, he says that, you know, ultimately, one of his goals is to get a, a, um, a minister for men and boys, just like there's a minister for women. We need that recognition so then we can get the funding and the tools and the spaces in place for men to talk about their mental health, which will remove stigma. So ultimately, the end goal would be government recognition and a specific role for a minister with a specific role for the disadvantages and the particular things particular struggles uh, that boys and men go through just like there is for for women and girls and it's well recognized the struggles that women and girls go through and on that note will it's been an absolute pleasure it's been a wonderful conversation i've absolutely loved this thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me mate brilliant thanks for having me freddie it's been great Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Will Hayes for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I'll put a link to where you can read the original Guardian piece, Will's response article and his social media handle in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please do give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th. All of those links are on our link tree. That's www.linktr.ee slash eventshelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>